Go ahead and go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn to Second Peter chapter one, and uh, as you're turning there, we're gonna we're gonna just uh, encourage you to to come back next Sunday. We're gonna be starting a new series called All Is Calm. It's it's gonna be an Advent series, and we're gonna be talking about how to have peace in a very unpeaceful world. And uh, we're gonna be talking about the calm that Jesus brings to us. And uh, we're going to get very practical in this. We're going to be talking about how to have peace when you're under pressure to perform and you feel like your performance is what defines you. And so we're going to be talking about how the gospel sets us free really from that performance trap. We're also going to be talking about how to have peace when you have strained relationships. And so we're living in a world that's divided and we live in a world where there's so much conflict even within relationships. And so we want to take the gospel and we want to apply it to how we relate to one another and to our friendships and our families and how we can love each other through the gospel. And so, so that just gives you a little bit of the flavor for the All Is Calm series. I don't want you, I don't want you to miss it. So uh, be sure to be here starting next Sunday. Now, this morning we're going to finish up a series called Counterculture, and uh, I want to talk about the power of God's Word today. I want to talk about the fact that God has called us to live as a counterculture, to live differently in the world, and that really begins with the Word of God. So we're going to read our, our text today from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word today? So Peter writes this, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So there's a book by Thomas Jefferson called the Jefferson Bible, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you know that Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States. You know that he was the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. And there was a season in his life when he really was struggling with his understanding of religion in general and and certainly Christianity in particular. And so what he began to do is he began to compile his own version of the Bible. And, uh, And so historians tell us that Jefferson was very devoted to the teachings of Jesus. But his problem was that he didn't really trust the people that actually walked with Jesus and lived with Jesus and who ultimately died for Jesus. He believed that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were untrustworthy correspondents 
of all that Jesus said and did. And so Jefferson uh, took it upon himself to really save uh, the teachings of Jesus from what he believed were these deceitful men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he took what is, what is called a pen knife and he began reading through the Gospels and he started cutting out of his version of the Bible, his, his Bible. He started cutting out of the Bible what he believed was true and he pasted it in his own version of the Bible and he left behind everything that he felt like was untrue. Now, what kinds of things did he, leave, did he leave out of his version of the Bible? Well, he left out basically everything that was miraculous. He left out Jesus walking on the water and Jesus healing the leper. He left out Jesus turning water into wine and feeding the 5,000. Now, Jefferson's Bible had the arrest and the death or the, de- the arrest and the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, but he didn't have the resurrection of Jesus in the Jefferson Bible. Because that was obviously the greatest miracle in all of Scripture. And so really the good news is he didn't really publicize his, his Jefferson Bible, but he, but he did read from it on a regular basis throughout his life. Now church, it's hard to fathom, at least for me, it's hard to fathom that somebody can be so confident in their own wisdom and in their own abilities that they can basically say, take a document that was 2,000 years old written by eyewitnesses and they can say, I know better about the truth of Jesus than the people that, that saw Jesus, that were with Jesus and who, like I said, ultimately died for Jesus. That to me is quite a stretch. And um, while it's unusual today, I think, to, to kind of take the Bible and to cut it up with, with a pen knife, you know, leaving behind what you think is false and taking with you what is what you think is true. Certainly the approach of Jefferson is prevalent today, wouldn't you agree? I mean, there are many voices today within, certainly on university campuses, certainly within, you know, within Hollywood and sports and entertainment, certainly the political atmosphere today. There are plenty of people today that would basically cut out most of everything of what the Bible says because the Bible presents to us today certain inconvenient truths that don't land on modern ears very well. You guys tracking with what I'm saying? The reality is, is that there are a lot of inconvenient truths in scripture about what it says about the value of human life, especially the value of unborn human life. That we that, that, that the Bible is full of affirmations about the sanctity and dignity of a baby in her mother's womb. And there's certain inconvenient truths about what the Bible says about sexuality and how it was God's idea and that God designed it to function only within a marriage and what God says about gender and how God made us male and female for each other. There's certain inconvenient truths that just don't land very well, that, that put anyone who believes it on the wrong side of history. There's certain inconvenient truths about what the Bible says about the reality of hell and the fact it was Jesus who said, you can't come to the Father except by me. Now that never made it into the Jefferson Bible either, but there's just inconvenient truths that, that really speak directly to where 
to where our society is today. Now, I, I think for most of us in this room today, most of us listening today, I, I think most of us don't have a problem with, with, with the Bible. I, I don't think, I think for most of us, we're not gonna say that you know, there are parts of it that are, that are wrong or outdated or whatever. But I do think that for a significant group of us, there are certain parts of it that we just simply try to avoid because they present inconvenient truths for us. Like that part, you know, that part in James that talks about the corrosive power of the tongue. We kind of want to just skip over that so that we can be critical of someone else, so that we can gossip about someone else, so that we can slander someone else. See, there's certain inconvenient truths throughout the word of God, especially as it relates to how we handle our financial resources and the challenge from scripture for us to set our hearts on something eternal rather than something temporal. And so there are just lots of things that, that the Bible teaches that are just, you know, challenging and uh, certainly inconvenient. And so here's the question that I have. What does it mean to be a people committed to the word of God in a culture like ours where you, like Jefferson, are really the final arbiter of truth? I mean, that's the culture we live in. Like we're all the final arbiters of truth, just like Thomas Jefferson. I mean, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in basically says there is no absolute right or wrong. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And when I read that, when I hear that, I want to say, are you absolutely sure about that? And so for so many in our culture, truth is relative. Truth is what you feel. And so what does it mean to be committed to the word of God in a culture where we're basically, you know, we basically say that, that, you know, something is true only if you feel it's true and something is false only if you feel like it's false. What does it mean to be committed to truth unchanging and, and eternal in a culture where right and wrong are constantly changing? And so I think those are huge questions. And I think for us as a church, if we're going to be a counterculture, it means we're committed to the word of God. It means that we live differently from the world, right? It, it, it simply means that, that we, we don't come to the scripture to judge it by determining what we feel is right and wrong with it. Rather, we come to the scripture so that it can judge us so that it determines what is right and what is wrong for us so that we can repent and be corrected and move into the path of life. That's what it means to be a, a counterculture in a society like ours today. So here's what I wanna do this morning, church. I, I, really, I really just wanna try to answer three questions about the word of God. I, I think there are three very important questions as it relates to living this, this counterculture. And the first one is this, what does it mean to be committed to the word of God? Like, what does that practically look like? Like tangibly every single day, what does that look like? And then secondly, why are we committed to the word of God? For what reason? And then third, how can we become more committed to the word of God? So let's look at the first one. What does it mean to be committed to the word? I think very practically, just, just in everyday life, it means being committed to the word means knowing the word of God. That's where it starts. It means just simply knowing 
knowing the word of God, that we're committed to learning what it says, to learning the content of what it says. And you see this in Acts chapter two, the early Christians figured this out right, right off the bat. Acts chapter 242, where Luke writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to it, to the, to the apostles' teaching. So, so then really the question becomes, well, what was the teaching of the apostles? Well, really what the teaching of the apostles was, was really just the Old Testament as it pointed to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what it was. That was the, really the essence of their preaching and teaching and their discipleship, their doctrine. And so the early Christians were devoted to this. That's why when you're reading through the New Testament, there's so many references to the Old Testament within the New Testament because they saw the Old Testament as pointing to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the, to the coming of his son. Now, this is not anything new. A people committed to the word of God is certainly not anything new. It didn't start in the, in the early church in Acts chapter 2. It started long before that. It started with God's people in the Old Testament. They were a word-centered people. They were a revelation-centered people. They were centered around the word of God. And you see this in Psalm chapter 1, where the psalmist writes this. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, the word, that is, of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, what, that, what Psalm 1 is telling us is that the way to happiness, the way to blessedness is not listening to sinners and not listening to scoffers and not listening you know, to what the culture is saying, but being devoted to the word of God and, and discerning God's word and the truth it is that's, in, that's contained in it. And so, and so for us, that means that there's no more important spiritual practice. There's no more important spiritual discipline, if you will, in the Christian life than knowing God's word. The Bible says it is, it is our bread. The Bible says it is our milk. The Bible says it is our meat. The Bible says it is our sweet dessert. And so we need physical nourishment and we need spiritual nourishment or else we, 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 we kind of just die spiritually. We, we dry up. And so if it's so important, why are so few, so few people regularly feasting off of God's word? Well, the theologian R.C. Sproul has, has a theory about this. Let me show you what he says about why you know, people are not regularly receiving the word of God. He says this. Here then is the real problem of our negligence. We, we fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand and not so much because it is dull and boring, but, but because it's work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is we are lazy. Now he's just cutting right to it. And I think the, I think the reality is, is it's easier for me and for you to kind of just scan social media and just kind of surf the internet than it is to really dig into the word of God. And so the reality is, is the word of God is challenging, church. I, I don't want to 
just throw rainbows and unicorns at you and just say, you know, this is a real easy book to, to really take in. It's not. It's, it's written by 40 different authors, three different continents, and three different languages over the course of probably 2,000 years. It's a challenging book. But, but think about this. Everything worthwhile is challenging, right? I mean, everything that you do that is worth it, there's a challenge that you have to overcome. And, and the reality is, is there's a payoff. As you, as you put yourself in God's word, it just kind of puts your life on a trajectory of blessing and a, and a God-centered happiness in your life. And so you experience joy and freedom and power over temptation and wisdom in life through the trials that you will go through, through the trials that I will go through. You know, I was talking with Charlie Dieter Charlie's a longtime member of Stones. He's a Vietnam veteran. And he was telling me about when he was in Vietnam and uh, he was in the foxholes at Vietnam. He said, in every foxhole I was in, I recited the 23rd Psalm, every single one of them. You know, when the bullets are flying by my, my, right by my head, I was reciting God's word right there in the, in the foxholes of, of Vietnam in the most dangerous of circumstances. Charlie found comfort from the word of God. He found purpose and peace in the midst of the storm, the literal storm and the literal battle. But see, he could have never found comfort in that if he didn't know the 23rd Psalm. He would have missed it. But God met him right there in that foxhole. Praise be to God for his word. So, so we need to know the word of God. That's what it means to be committed to his word. But secondly, we need to obey his word. And so, and so we're reminded that 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 the happiness and blessedness comes from really obeying the word of God. James tells us this in, in James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Notice what he says. He will be blessed in his doing. And so it's not enough just to hear. It's not enough just to know. What James is saying is, you go and do. You go and obey. And so... And so that's where the blessing is. He's basically saying that obedience to God's word always leads to the blessing of God. You know, it's interesting in being a pastor, I've never heard anybody say, in all the years that I've pastored, I've never heard anybody say, well, you know, I've really been following God's blueprint, God's word for relationships, and I've been conducting my relationships according to the word of God, and I just really regret that. I've never heard anybody say that. I followed God's plan for sexuality, and I just really regret that. I've never heard that. What I hear is the opposite. What I hear is people saying, I should have obeyed the word of God, and I can't go back and redo it. That's what I hear all the time. And so, and so there's blessing and joy that comes when we know God's word and we obey God's word, and then thirdly, when we spread God's word. That's what it means to be committed to the word. We spread the word of God. Now, it's fascinating. You see this right in front of your eyes when you read through the book of Acts because it's really the story of the church spreading, the gospel spreading like wildfire, 
right? And, and so you see this throughout the book of Acts. And, and uh, what is particularly fascinating to me is the change that you see in the apostles after the coming of the Holy Spirit. I mean, before, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, at, you know, right before... You know, right before the Holy Spirit is poured out, you see the apostles, they're, they're, they're fearful, they're divided, they're separated, they're self-focused, they're self-absorbed. And then the Holy Spirit comes in power and empowers them to spread the word of God. And they go all in on it. And you see this huge change in them. They are together. They're loving each other. They're boldly proclaiming what just weeks before they... They couldn't even utter a word of it because they were so scared. And, uh, and so something in them changed. They experienced the power of the word of God in their heart and in their mind. And you see this in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Notice what Luke records. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So notice the correlation there. As the word of God increases, the number of disciples increases. You see that? So as the word of God increases in your heart and in my heart, what happens is the church grows. The kingdom grows. As the word of God enlarges inside of us, lives are absolutely changed. So that's what it means to be committed to his word. Now, why are we committed to the Word of God? Why? I mean, it could be that you've been in church your, your whole life and you've never thought about, you know, why, am, why do we stand and read the Word of God? Why do we follow it? Why do we need it in our lives? You, maybe you've never thought about that. Maybe you come to church and you're not committed to the Word of God. And maybe you've never thought about, you know, why am I so hesitant with this? Why don't I go all in like the apostles did? Well, let me give you three reasons why we are committed to God's word. Number one, let me just, just put the bread on the bottom shelf, all right? It's true. <laughs> That's why we're committed to, to God's word because it's true. And I'm not saying, well, it's true for us. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that. I'm saying when I say it's true, like it's objectively true. We're talking about in this book, real people in a real place, in a real time who had real experiences with the presence of God. That's what we're talking about. Just as real as rain. Not true for me and maybe not you know, true for you. I'm talking about objectively true. Now let me just show you this from our passage that we read, 2 Peter chapter 1. Because, because you need to kind of see, see this in action just very practically. So, so Peter's writing this letter and what he's doing is he's really responding to the charge that he's making things up. Like he... Like he's got these myths and these stories and he's just kind of combining it together and calling it Christianity. So he's responding to that charge that he's just making things up. And I want to show you what he says. Look at verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's like, we didn't, we're not making this up. We're just sharing with you what we saw. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. We were there. And so we're not passing on to you myths and stories and, you know, fables and legends. We saw him. We saw him dead. We saw him resurrected. 
We were there. And that's all we are passing on to you, what we've seen and what we heard. And then he goes on to say this in verse 17. He expands on it. And he says this, for, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. For we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about, remember that story in the gospels about the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured right in front of them. Peter was there. He saw that. Like he, he heard the voice. And so, and so that, is, that is what he's really trying to say is, let me just be clear. I'm just giving to you what we've seen and what we have heard. And then, and then he goes on to say, and we have the prophetic, prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So basically what he's saying there is everything that was written about Jesus in the Old Testament, we saw the confirmation, the fulfillment of it right in front of our very eyes. Now, I don't know how more direct you can be than what Peter is talking about here. And so the question is, do you trust Peter? The question is, do you trust John and James and Matthew and Luke and Paul? Do you trust the men that saw what they saw and heard what they heard from the life of Jesus? You know, what's interesting about Thomas Jefferson to me is that um, he, he doesn't abandon everything that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he just picks out what, he, what fits his narrative. He just kind of picks out what he thinks are the principles and, and what's fascinating to me is the principles are meaningless if his death and resurrection did not occur. Do you guys tracking with what I'm saying? So it's kind of an all or nothing deal. It's either all true or it's either all worthless. And so, so that's one reason why we commit ourselves to the word of God because it's true. Number two, because it enlightens us. The word of God enlightens us. And, and, and Peter really unpacks this. Look, look again at verse 19. He says this, and we, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention. If you pay attention to it, you'll do really well. That's what he's saying. And then he says this, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You know, when you're in a dark place and you need some light and then somebody lights a lamp, what do you do? You pay attention to that lamp. And what he's really talking about here is this. He's reminding us that the Bible is full of imagery about light and darkness. That there's a contrast from Genesis to Revelation with light and darkness. And, and what we see is particularly after the fall, this world is darkness. And you and I dwell in darkness. We're surrounded every day by moral and spiritual darkness uh, that, that pervades our existence on the earth. Our sin is the source of that darkness. The enemy of our souls is, is, a, is a source of that darkness. But God is the light. God is the light. And so the truth is, people on their own, left to their own devices, they don't get better. Like we're not progressing through human history and just getting better and better and better as a, as a people. No, we left to our own devices. We do the same types of things repeatedly and history proves it over and over and over and over again. It's, it's kind of like this. I mean, think of it, think of it this way. Think we, that all of us as a, as a human race are in a dark room 
and, uh, and we, can't, we can't really see because it's dark. So we're bumping around, we're running into the table, you know, we're running into the wall, we're running into each other. We can't really see. And so we try and try and try, but we have no clue how to get out of the dark room by ourselves. And so what Peter is saying is this is what life is like apart from the revelation of God. That the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it shows us where the exit point is out of this, out of this dark world. Peter says the scriptures are the light. They shed light on who we are, people in need of grace, and they shine light on who God is and the problem of this world. And so, and so when, you, when you experience the light of God, you begin to see that you're valuable in his eyes. As sinful as we are, we are so much more loved. And, and that God has a plan and a purpose for us. That we can walk with him and know his presence and know his goodness. That is light. And what happens with his light is it sets us free. It sets us free from ourselves. It sets us free from the power of sin in our life. And so, and so we, we, uh, we're thankful. We're, we, we're committed to the word of God because it's true. Because it enlightens. And then, and then thirdly, because it is God-breathed. It is God-breathed. Look at what he says, how he describes this in verses 20 and 21. He says, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Uh, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, now it's true that there have been, there've been quacks throughout human history who've, who have claimed, you know, a divine authority. They've claimed a divine revelation for themselves. They've claimed some kind of secret knowledge of the gods or, or of God. Certainly that's true, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about that. He, he's, he's really talking about that what we have in the Old Testament scriptures and what we have and what is recognized the New Testament scriptures is, is something that's not produced by the will of man. It was produced through men, but it was produced by the will of God. And so the writers of scripture were not speaking of their own. They were not making things up. They were only giving to us what was revealed to them. Scripture is a revelation of who God is. And God always works through people to accomplish his purposes. And so they didn't speak as, you know, they were speaking from themselves. They were speaking for God. They didn't write as writing from themselves. They were, they were writing down the words of God. And this was a process that was superintended by the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. He says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so practically what that means for us is we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. We believe in the infallibility of the scriptures. Because while it was men who wrote the scriptures, they were doing so under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we believe that, um, that God dictated the very words of scripture to the, to the writers of scripture. Um, it was not God dictating the very words. You know, you read Matthew, you read Luke, you read the Apostle Paul, you'll notice their writing styles are different. You notice they have personalities. You notice they have different goals. They have 
different experiences. What, what you notice is they're very human in who they are, and that humanness comes out. But they're writing, but they're writing under the power and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God was working through them, through their own experiences, in their own style, in their own ways, to preserve to us his very word, God's word through human agents. I love how this is described in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed um, or breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so, and so we believe that God has breathed out his very word to us. And so that's why we stand in reverence because God has revealed, God has, God has spoken. Now let me just kind of finish with this. How do we, how do we grow uh, more committed to God's word? Let me just share with you, let me get just really practical four ways that you can grow in God's word today. The first thing that I would say is this, you need to be reading God's word. You need to be reading God's word. This is the first and most fundamental thing that you can do. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Church, you're never going to grow spiritually. You're never going to experience the blessing of God if you are not reading regularly his word. It's just not going to happen. You need a regular intake of God's word. And we're living in a time where people are coming to church about once a month now. Throughout the United States, that's kind of the pattern Church attendance is starting to just kind of shrink. And so what that is, is people are basically saying, I just need one spiritual meal a month. And I'm telling you, you'll never grow. You'll never grow with that kind of malnourishment. You need a regular intake of God's word, God speaking to you in a powerful way. I, I want to encourage you on this first Sunday of Advent, if you've kind of drifted in your habit of reading scripture, you know, go go and download a Bible app. And on that Bible app, they will probably have an Advent reading plan. Uh, you know, they'll give you a list of scriptures that will prepare you for the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus on Christmas. So you could, you could read these days and weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus. So, so I use an app called Logos. A lot of people use an app called YouVersion. If you're not a reader, you can, you can download an app called Dwell dwell and it will read the Bible to you. So as you're getting ready in the morning, as you're driving on your way to work, whatever, you can have, you can have a Bible, somebody reading God's word to you uh, just, just right, over, right over your phone. And so, so I want to encourage you to have a plan. And again, what happens, church, is when you, when you come under the authority of God's word, when you open yourself up to the word of God, it puts your life on a trajectory and your life becomes becomes just kind of cemented to a path. And this path is light. This path is blessing. This path is joy. This path is freedom. And there are times when I, I'm reading, you know, I'm reading God's word and, you know, I'm in the middle of Leviticus. And I really, I really don't hear God speaking to me through whatever I'm reading that day. But what I know is my life is on a certain path. And my life's going to be altered as I, as I put myself under the word of God consistently and regularly in my life. 
Secondly, another way to become more committed to God's word is just to simply believe his word. To simply believe it. In other words, it's not enough just to, just to read the Bible like you're reading a novel. It, it's not enough to, to read the Bible like you're, you know, you're reading some, some story. See, this, the word of God is living and active. And so when you open it up, the power of it flows into your life. It is moving. The spirit of God is speaking. It is God's voice to you. And so as we approach it in that way, we come humbly. We come in a hungry fashion. We come desiring more and more of his word. In his word are literally thousands of promises. And so, so you're going to put your trust in something. There's some word you're going to trust. I would challenge you to put your trust in something eternal, something lasting. And so believing God's word, that's, that's faith. And our faith grows as we, as we are exposed more and more to God's word. So what part, what part of your life uh, do you need to believe God's word right now? Maybe your marriage. Maybe your finances, uh, maybe relationships, maybe, maybe your children. Is there a promise from God that you need to be centering your life on, a specific area of your life? Read God's word, believe God's word. Number three, I've already mentioned this, but I'm coming back to it. Obey God's word, obey God's word. And so it's interesting when you kind of think about it, the demons believe in the word of God. The demons know the power of the word of God. The thing about demons is they don't obey the word of God. And I, I guess the question is, church, is there an area of your life where you know you're not obeying the word of God? Is there an area of your life where you know you're compromised in your relationship with God? Where you're really going against what he has revealed to you? See, obedience always leads to blessing. So whatever area of your life that you want blessed, just obey God in that area. And you'll experience it. You'll experience the blessing of God. And so when we become compromised, what happens is we're really compromising our own joy. We're compromising our own freedom. We're compromising the very presence and communion of God that we have with him. And then lastly, my challenge to you, if you want to grow in your commitment to God's word, is share his word. Share his word. Now, when I, when I talk about this, I, I know a lot of you get nervous about this because you think, well, I'm not a Bible scholar. You know, I, I don't really, you know, know enough of God's word to share it. Church, listen, if you know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's really all you need to know to be able to share it. And so if you, if you need to go home and memorize that verse, go ahead and do it so that you can share God's word. And so your message, our message, the message of the church in a very dark world is God so loved that he gave. And if we believe, we receive. It doesn't get any more simple than that. You got this, you can do this. And so what you see is when you move in this, when you move in, you go all in on the word of God, then, then as you go all in on the word of God, the word of God starts to flow out of you like streams of living water, and you experience it in a life-changing way. So, so that's what it means to be a counterculture in a world where truth is constantly changing, 
right and wrong are constantly morphing and evolving. But thanks be to God that his word is lasting and eternal and will never change. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise that you are a God who has revealed himself to us. We don't always understand the, the, the whys and the wherefores. And, but Lord, we trust the power of your word, whether we're getting shot at in a foxhole or we're struggling in a marriage or we're dealing with rebellious children or we're struggling with health. God, thank you that your word is joy. Your word is light and life. Even when we're surrounded by death. Even when we're surrounded by darkness. And I just ask God that you would, you would just show us your great glory. And that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us hearts that yearn for your word, that long for your word, that submit to your word. So, Lord, we ask that we would be people committed to the word of truth. So we give ourselves to you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said.